All right, hello everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Peanut Gallery. My name is Tim Scott. Again, virtually talking to my friend George Harder. George Alive Harder over there. Well. Yes, Alive we are well. still separated. Still separated by the confines of the world. Alive and well at my dining room table. Yes, and I also at uh, kind of a makeshift breakfast nook area here. You know, George, uh, you know, I have a two-year-old, and uh, I've been awake since 4.30 in the morning, so uh, I've been going for, for a while now. How's good. your day going? That's good for you. Get the blood flowing and, you know, really remember what, what life is all about. Well, after, after we finish here, why don't you take the rest of the day off? I might, I might, I might cuddle up with a warm blanket and uh, see if I can get in a nice late morning nap. But how are you doing today, sir? Doing fine. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. It definitely is. We're lucky to be here, kind of uh, ensconced in springtime, and where we are, it's it's gorgeous day. And uh, I thought we'd kind of kick off this gorgeous day by talking a little bit about musical theater. And I thought today, George, we would talk about strangely enough musicals. <laughs> Can you feel? imagine? Well, I thought we'd try to pivot. A lot of organizations are pivoting. I thought we'd pivot and talk about musicals today. Mm-hmm. Um, more specifically, I wanted to talk about, you know, the trends of that musicals may set if they're tr- maybe following a trend or maybe musicals setting a trend, and maybe how that even leads into revivals of musical theater. And I thought we might start off with that. And you talking a little bit about, you know, a lot of times revival has a has an almost a negative connotation to it. It's like, why is it? It does. Well, I think it's because the reason why they call a revival a revival is because you're reviving its business. You're bringing it back from the dead. Uh, In the commercial theater industry, if a show runs out of audience, uh, runs out of ticket sales, it closes. And in the old days, uh, back in the 30s and even through uh, uh, a lot of the 40s, when uh, a show closed, there was rarely any effort to save any of the materials because they figured that uh, nobody's ever want to do these shows again. They're dead. If audiences have run out, all the tickets have been sold, move on to something else. So to bring a musical back is to revive its business. You notice that in uh, the opera world, when the Metropolitan Opera does uh, uh, La Boheme, they don't call that a revival. (laughs) And uh, uh, so I think that's the reason why it is uh, a little little pejorative. Also, what else is called a revival? A tent revival. It has a religious connotation. Uh, There used to be uh, uh, traveling uh, preachers who would... Uh, set up a tent and that uh, was called a, a spiritual re- revival because you were reviving people's faith in, in, uh, in Jesus and the Christian faith. Uh, so I think that revivals kind of have a, a negative connotation for those reasons. And also uh, there was a, a time a few decades ago when about all there was on Broadway uh, were revivals. There were so many of them. And uh, now today, there's enough musical theater history that's flowed under the bridge. And we have enough distance from some of these uh, shows from uh, 40s, 50s, 
even the thirties perhaps that now you can bring them back either as and call them a classic, a restored classic, like the ones that uh, Lincoln Center has done the past few years, like uh, Kelly O'Hara and the King and I. Uh, they had the South Pacific uh, a few years ago that ran about two years and uh, where they put the whole score back together that exactly as it was heard in 1949. So now they tend to call them classics or with some of the uh, shows, the so-called revivals now on Broadway, uh, like Company with an all-female cast or West Side Story with uh, uh, all-new choreography, they're called reimagined. <laughs> so they're trying to get away from the word revival. You know, something interesting that struck me that you said early on is there was no, they didn't retain the script or the score or recording. They thought we're going to put this show up and then to hell with it, it's going to be done and we'll move on to the next one. And you indicated that that was something that <clears throat> may have stopped in, in the forties or the fifties. Do you have any indication of, of, of when that might've been so? And I only ask because, you know, Oklahoma, which we've talked about a lot was 1944, I believe when it opened on Broadway and R and H did a huge restoration campaign of all of their shows over the last 15, 20 years. And Oklahoma was one of the last ones they got to, you know, we did Oklahoma at our theater. So I did a little bit of research on that. And they said they went back and the only original material they could find was the stage manager's book. And so hmm. they found the stage manager's book and a lot of the, when they restored Oklahoma, uh, a lot of the restoration in terms of script and stuff came from the original stage manager's book because what they had was just what they thought it was. And so they went in and changed script around to get it back to what they believe was the closest thing to the original. That also included some updated orchestrations that were lost. But of course now, everything being digital, of course, it's very much easier to to retain and store and, and file away stuff do you have any indication when when that might have been the case when they might have said to themselves hey you know let's hang on to some of this stuff i don't know i would imagine it would be uh at the beginning of the computer age when you could digitize a, a lot of this material because uh i know that uh, there's a university that has been um retained by the Gershwin, George, the, the estate of George and Ira Gershwin, uh, to where uh, they have recalled all of Gershwin's uh, musical theater works, uh, especially Porgy and Bess, because there have been so many versions and variations that if you decide to do one of their shows, especially Porgy and Bess, you get it uh, in a big box and you don't know what you're going to get. Uh, <laughs> and um, so they're, they're trying to come up with definitive versions of especially George's, uh, George Gershwin's music and uh, George and Ira Gershwin's musical theater output in the 20s because none of that stuff was saved. Um, What's interesting about that is that many people, I assume, listening to this podcast have never seen what the licensed version of a show looks like, like the hard copy of a script that theaters get in order to produce the show. And as you well know, there are some scripts, even to this day, you, you get the score and it looks, it looks like it's been handwritten. Um, so to your point about, you know, you think that really the kind of uh, the rush to store and, and keep 
good files is with the computer error. I think that that's true because when we get a score and a script that looks like it's all digitized and it's been run through Finale, which is a, a musical program or some other program, and everything is just pristine, as producers and actors and musicians, well, that's much, much easier to work with and to replicate. Uh, but there still, in 2020, there are some things that, that we'll get that are very difficult to read. As I said, they look as if they've been handwritten, music and script, Xeroxed, photocopied, you know, who knows how many times. So I can understand why uh, such a, you know, uh, re-energized estate like the Gershwin estate would want to take, uh, you know, very seriously trying to trying to make that what they want it to be and freshen that up and send it out. This is what it is, not what it may have morphed into over the last two decades. Yeah, the, the late uh, John McGlynn, uh, especially in the 80s and 90s, uh, he's, he's gone now, but uh, he, he received uh, uh, quite a lot of grant money uh, in order to restore some of these uh, old musicals, and it was quite a challenge. The first one he worked on was Showboat from 1927, and uh, he, he was charged with putting the whole show back together exactly the way it was uh, heard uh, on opening night in, in New York. And he succeeded in doing that. In fact, he, he actually recovered all the songs that were dropped uh, during the tryout in Washington, D.C., when the show ran over four and a half hours long. And uh, they released a box set of it, uh, what, 20 years ago. But uh, that's an example of even even Showboat. I mean, if you'd be lucky if when the show closed, if somebody jammed a staple through a through the score and threw it in the file cabinet. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. But honestly, I can't fault them. I mean, even even how I live my life today, I'm like, all right, well, this is done. I'm going to throw it away. Exactly. <laughs> Just because you know, I I don't want to become a hoarder. Uh, and how how do you know seventy eighty years ago? How do you know anything? But what we know now to think to again just to use oklahoma as an example to think that you're like all right well this one's done let's move on to the next one uh anybody know where the copy of the script of the score is i ah, forget it we don't really need it anymore anyhow. <laughs> well the uh what was it uh 15 18 years ago uh the theater company we worked for did an all-female version of 1776 and it was very successful locally uh, it got some national attention, but now they are going to be reviving uh, 1776 on Broadway in New York in 2021. Yeah, I think Diane Paulus who's doing that, I think, American Repertory Theater. And I think it's going to have a, a, a mixed gender cast. I think you're right. And, and over the years, uh, our theater company has gotten calls from many other uh uh, local theater companies around the country who heard about the production and wanted to borrow materials and we couldn't, we couldn't find them. Oh, we don't know where they are. <laughs> we did it. We're, that was 12 years ago. It's over. But yeah, yeah, I think it's such a, it's such an interesting, interesting point about, you know, not really even understanding the history that you're making, especially when we talk about showboat and, well, and Oklahoma and stuff. And, you know, for, for those who, maybe more casual observers of musical theater. Uh, let me, let me give you an analogy of why this, uh, this dynamic might have existed in musical theater. 
and think of comic books. I think musical theater back in the in the early part of its its history were were like comic books. They were disposable. You read them once, and uh, maybe you might uh, collect them when you were a kid. But then gradually, now comic books have reached the status of of literature. There, <laughs> comic books have become its own art form. And uh, think of uh, uh, Fun Home, which began its life as sort of a comic book and in the style of, of a comic book, the original. Yeah, graphic uh, novel. Yeah, the, the source material was on the style of a comic book. That's an example of how comic books have uh, become its own art form. And I think that over the years, musical theater has done the same thing. It was, it was a theatrical version of a comic book but gradually now it has morphed into its own uh, genuine art form. That's interesting. I mean, that's fascinating. I think that that's probably right on the nose. Back in the you know, 30s and 40s, they're like, ah, oh, we're just doing this. It's, it's nothing. But now they're like, oh, here in 2020, oh, it's been going for 100 years. <laughs> We'd love to have, you know, uh, the original copies or the restorations of it. But let's, let's move on and talk a little bit about why. Why revive a show? I mean, uh, there's a lot of a lot of different reasons. I assume you touched on a few of them. Uh, why, why do you think the the main impetus is to to revive a show? I think it's because you feel like that there is a new audience. Not that you're trying to recapture the old audience. There, there, yes, sometimes, uh, but I th I think it's because you feel like. Uh, this show was successful once. Now in this generation, it can be successful again. I think the best example I can give of that is Candor and Ebb's Chicago, which first opened in 1974, I think, and ran for just under two years. Nobody got it. It was a kind of a dark, twisted musical about two women who murdered their husbands and, and got off, uh, were acquitted. It was a, a media trial in Chicago. It was based on a true story from the 1920s, by the way. And it was written and staged in the style of a vaudeville show. And the songs were sort of pastis of, of old vaudeville. Closed just under two years. Then in, uh, in 1996, Encores in New York did a concert version of the show. And it was wildly popular. And it wound up opening on Broadway again in 1997 and is still running today after, what, 27 years? Yeah, the longest running revival in the history of musical theater. And in second only to Phantom of the Opera. So That's incredible. It's, it's the longest running American musical of all time. And it's a revival. So what changed? The O.J. Simpson trial. Wow. The O.J. Simpson trial then people understood a new audience understood what a media trial is that and that's is, that's something i've never even thought about i've never even put that together and that is what that is what uh chicago was about it was about a media trial in the 1920s of these two women who uh, their names appeared in the paper every day and people were following them but audiences in 1974 uh, 1976 didn't understand what what that meant, what a media trial was. But after O.J. Simpson, they did. And I think that's the reason why 
audiences uh, got it, and then a uh, uh, whole new generation found the subject fascinating. Yeah, I think that that's that's amazing, and also, you know, kind of a trait of a of a of a masterpiece of a great show is a show that has longevity and that can that can really be current no matter what era it is. So you're talking about Chicago specifically and how it was re-energized because of the O.J. Simpson trial. That makes great sense because that is basically what the show is about. But I'll also offer that, you know, our theater was scheduled to do Chicago this year. In fact, it was scheduled to go into rehearsal in a few weeks. We're not doing that anymore. Of course, because of the virus, we've postponed it till next year. But what we found interesting about it and why we wanted to examine it is we look at it as fame garnered through the media, you know, exploiting the media to get headlines and to make your brand or or yourself more famous, uh, which is, again, exactly what these if you know Chicago, it's exactly what these women are doing. They're just trying to fight for the headlines so they can increase the value of their brand, of their of their name so they can go out and demand more money as cabaret performers. And I think we see a lot of that going on in 2020. Uh, so I just find that, uh, you know, the great masterpieces, I think that why they're so great in the moment is because of course, like, God, the music is so incredible, but why they have such longevity is because their message is timeless. Yes. And also the songs uh, are well known. So you have some built in marketing mm -hmm. momentum there. Uh, Stephen Sondheim has enjoyed uh, a lot of revivals of his shows. The company now is running at the, uh, uh, or, or it's closed. It was, closed. yeah. It, it was, and hopefully it'll start up again with an all-female cast. It's been revived. no, no. It's not. It's it's not all-female. The the character of Bobby. The character of Bobby. Oh, that's right. Yes. Woman. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And uh, uh, I think Sondheim said in some interviews that. Uh, he wishes that his shows would have caught on when he first wrote them instead of uh, 30 and 40 years later because uh, audiences are beginning to kind of get what he's all about. Just as a quick side note, this has nothing to do with our podcast, but you've often compared Frank Wildhorn to Stephen Sondheim in saying that you, you feel that Frank Wildhorn in 20, 30 years, his musicals could be much more successful than they originally were because it's going to take people that long to catch up with them. I said that. I thought you said that. that. Did you well, not say that? That's kind of, that's pretty brilliant. I can't believe I <laughs> would say something like that. I thought you'd said that about like Jekyll and Hyde and some of his other work. I'll tell you. Uh, uh, yeah, I think I think his. Um, I think he brings a, a certain pop sensibility to a lot of his scores, which. Uh, could become dated and maybe come back around. I think the subject of his shows uh, uh, would, would be timeless. Uh, another uh, another uh, Stephen Sondheim kind of wannabe, if you ask me, is uh, Maury Yeston. If you listen to his music from Titanic, I think he, he kind of tries to be Sondheim-ish in places. You know, that's a that's a that's a lovely segue because Titanic especially is a show that has been it, it's never had a Broadway revival since its original production, but it has been rumored to have a revival for honestly the last three or four years. There was a beautiful production at the Signature Theater that got some momentum as well as other productions. Now the reason why Titanic probably hasn't been revived is because it's it, it, it's one of the most expensive shows ever produced. Um, and that leads 
to another reason to revive shows, which I think we've seen time and time again, is conceptual, something that, and you hit on this earlier too, um, <clears throat> the original production of Color Purple, for example, we've talked about it, and it was lavish, and they tried to recreate the, 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 the like a Gone with the Wind type aesthetic mansions and stuff like that. Well, the revival was very much the opposite of that. It was a, a wall full of chairs and and really nothing much else. And so when you see people reimagining is the word that I think that we've used, reimagining, it's not just in terms of I'm going to cast a female as Bobby or I'm going to do some sort of, you know, uh, alternate casting approach. But it, it also can be in terms of the aesthetic of the entire show. Um, wouldn't you agree with that? Yes. And I think uh, <clears throat> producers sometimes feel like, well, why reinvent the wheel? Uh, why try to get a, a composer to write a brand new score? And in, especially in this day and age, you don't know how it's going to play. Tarzan the musical, I think, lasted uh, two and a half hours on Broadway and, and, <laughs> and, and, and closed. And, uh, and the show was three hours long, so it was even more amazing. <laughs> you had um, Aaron's and Flaherty had uh, uh, Rocky the musical, which right. did not do well. So I, I think that sometimes producers feel like, well, this has already been, a, this, this show really deserved to be more of a success than it was. It's great material. As I say, why reinvent the wheel? Why don't we figure out a way, get a very creative director and figure out a way to bring this material back uh, without the lavish expense that the original had? And when you talk about expense, of course, you're talking about, for those who may not know, the original, you put up a musical originally, you know, the process is even when you get into rehearsal, the process could be months. I mean, you could be talking about three, four months of rehearsal, then an out-of-town tryout, and then back to rehearsals for Broadway. I mean, you could be talking about six months to a year before that show gets to Broadway. And that's that's after the developmental phase. I think Lin-Manuel Miranda's famously quoted as saying, it took him eight years to write In the Heights, it took him eight years to write Hamilton. Well, once the show's written, it takes another year just to get it up. And when you have a revival... You 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 at least know what you have. You have the yes. you have the script. It's been developed. Really, nothing more is required of you than if you want to put a conceit on it, um, you can do that. But much more cost efficient because what you're trying to produce on stage is finished, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Also, I think that revivals uh, tend tend to be star vehicles. They'll put a big star in it because people will come out to see the big star and not particularly in the show. Best example coming up, you have a, a revival of The Music Man with uh, Hugh Jackman as Professor Harold Hill, which is supposed to be on Broadway coming in, in September. Uh, Sutton Foster. Again. I think Sutton, Sutton Foster's, Foster's Marion. going to be in it. And, uh, and uh, uh more recently, you had uh, Daniel Radcliffe in a revival of How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Um, and usually the big stars will sign on for maybe a year, maybe maybe uh, 18 months, uh, which is usually the reason why a revival won't, won't last more than that length of time unless they get another star in the show. So in terms of revival, you've got the reasons to revive. You've got 
a show that maybe didn't do as well in the moment and you think it deserves better. So you bring it back. You feel it's more timely in this moment. You've got another reason. Uh, you feel like you've got a conceit, uh, a concept that, that may work on it now. A, a great example of that, of course, is Daniel Fish's Oklahoma, which just recently closed on Broadway. Um, and then the other reason is basically what Lincoln Center does, which is we want to reinstall the original production to give modern audiences a look at what, you know, uh, My Fair Lady or The King and I would have looked like when they premiered in the 50s and 60s. And That's those are, classic. of course, it as a classic. That's your, your concept there. You want to you present it as a classic. Do you think this moment of time that we're in now, all of the theaters across the United States of America are shuttered? That's without exception. Um, when they reopen again and when they start planning again, do you think there's going to be – I mean what, what do you think about the approach? We've talked about this a lot, but do you think there's a thirst for revivals now because people are – as you've said, people want to go out to be tickled. They want to be entertained at that point. Do you think – there's going to be more of a thirst for revivals or do you think the same balance is going to be struck? I think there'll be more of a thirst for revivals. And I think the revivals will be shows from uh, maybe the eighties and nineties. Um, David Burns, American Utopia ran for uh, it, it closed because it was a limited run. I think 13 weeks it's coming back in September. Uh, so that's one of the fastest, fastest revivals in history. Um, uh, the Who's Tommy begins previews in 2021. Uh, and and I, that's a good example of, of one that's more of a contemporary show that is coming back. And, and Tommy might be a good example of the type of revival that I, I think you'll see more of after the theaters start reopening. You know, what's interesting about Tommy is I th that show came out, I think, in the early 90s originally. Um, and the revival, from my understanding, is being directed by Des Makinoff, who directed the original. Now, it's not often that you see that happen. Um, I think, you know, I think famously, Fosse directed the revival of Sweet Charity, which he directed the original production. And I say famously because he, he died on opening night of the revival. But oftentimes... The, a revival or a reimagining is is not done by the original director for lots of different reasons. So I thought that was interesting when I saw that Des Mackinoff was going to be directing the yeah. revival of Tommy. I mean, uh, I just be I think that everyone's just anxious for theater to come back in any form or another. But I don't disagree with you. I think that revivals are going to be uh, even more plentiful than usual because of that yearn for nostalgia and that yearn for I want it. I want to get back to normal and I want to see what I know. Um, well, George, you know, that's going to pretty much wrap it up for us here uh, virtually on the MTH podcast, the peanut gallery. You know, every episode we like to end with a, a story or an anecdote from the peanut gallery. I think that I've, it's probably my turn. I've kind of forced upon you to go the last several times. I'll tell a, a quick story about a, Good. a show, a show that happened at our theater a long, long time ago. It was a, a show that I performed in called Brigadoon. Um, for those of you who don't know Brigadoon, it's about the magical, mystical town of Brigadoon that appears out of thin air once every hundred years. And I was playing the role of Tommy Albright, which was played in the movie by Gene Kelly. And we get to the point of the play where Mr. Lundy, the, the townskeeper, <laughs> the townskeeper of Brigadoon is, 
is recanting to Tommy and his friend who've wandered. Tommy's wandered into Brigadoon. He's like, oh, what is this magical place? What is this place? Uh, and Mr. Lundy is telling him all about this place, and what it is, and he's explaining it to him. It's basically the premise of the whole play is told in this speech. The audience needs to know this information. <laughs> so they can follow the plot. Right? That's right. He's like the Greek chorus. That's right. And Mr. Lundy, God bless him, an older gentleman, um, he, he, could not, <laughs> he could not remember the story. Brigadoon. <laughs> he could not remember the story of Brigadoon. So that presented some challenges, George. Uh, you know, it's an integral part of the play. So I started to try and <laughs> feed him the story of Brigadoon as best I could. Now, how would my character possibly know the story of Brigadoon? This scene in the play is all about my character learning the story of Brigadoon. So I said I stuff like, uh, I well, Mr. Lundy. You did yeah. with a series of questions. You I did. I did. I said, Mr. Lundy, I, Mr. Lundy, what about the witches? I, I heard stories about the witches when I was passing by the tavern. He's like, oh, the witches. Yeah, the witches. And every time we thought he was back on track, like we thought we were out of the woods, you know, good enough. Let's get out. And I, I, I got back to my block and I stood up and I said, well, Mr. Lundy, that sounds great. He would stare me in the eye and he had his hand on my shoulder, digging into my shoulder. His face was red. And he'd say, no, no. We have to go back to the beginning. And, you know, like a, like, a, like a beaten dog, I would walk back to my bench, sit down, and he, God bless him, he would start all over from the beginning of the story, still not knowing. This, George, this went on for, I feel like, seven hours. Well, some um, of the other cast members uh, said, well, uh, Mr. Lundy, tell them about how the village appears every <laughs> Yeah, I mean, thank How God. How many years our, is it? Is it 100 years, Mr. Lundy? Thank God our, our music director, who was also playing the piano, at one point she just had enough and she just started playing the, you know, the underscoring scene change music as loud as she could. And I got the hell out of there. <laughs> I got to tell you, about 10 years of my life were taken off in those in those few minutes. But uh, that is the great uh, the great thing about live theater is that you never know what's going to happen. And uh I'm certainly anxious to get back to that. I know you are, and I know our listeners are as well. So, uh, well, and I remember poor Mr. Lundy, the the man who played the part. He, it was kind of, kind of heartbreaking because he broke character a couple of times and said, "I don't know how to get out of this." Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I don't know how to get out of this, George, but I do know once I hit finish recording on this iPad, we're going to be done. So thanks for joining me again, George. Hopefully we'll be Thank able to see you each other opportunity and to love and serve. sit across from each other face to face in the very near future. So uh, for George Harder, I'm Tim Scott. Thanks for listening. So long.